Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 here in just a few moments, if you'd like to find that place in your copy of Scripture. In just a few weeks, we're going to begin a new worship series, sermon series, entitled Encounters with Jesus. And what we're going to do is walk through some of His uh, conversations and interactions with folks in the Gospels. Uh, And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because our Vacation Bible School takes our kids on a journey through Jerusalem uh, during the last week of Jesus' life. So our sermon series in the summer will coincide with that. And also because there will be an opportunity or plenty of opportunities this summer for you to invite friends or family or neighbors or co-workers to join with you at church and hear messages about meeting with Jesus. It's a good opportunity for us to be encouraged as followers of Jesus. It's also a good opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to invite others to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pay attention to that upcoming worship series. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 10 in just a moment. Uh, But let me relay a story that I was thinking about this week in light of this sermon. And I remember growing up in a a pastor's home. Uh, My dad is a retired Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, my mom did all sort of odd jobs over the years as a teacher. She worked at, a, at, a, at an antique shop over the years to provide for our family. And I remember hearing this phrase more, more than once as a child. And when I would ask mom and dad for something, they said, Son, we just can't afford it. Now, we weren't really poor growing up. And what I mean by really poor is we always had food. Uh, I can't remember a day in my life where I didn't have a meal or several meals. Uh, I can only remember a time or two where we didn't have power. And uh, most of that related to hurricanes and and things that had come through and knocked power out. I don't remember ever feeling unloved at home. I never had to sleep outside in the sense of not having shelter. But as I've looked back as an adult, I realized that our family was not really wealthy. Maybe wealthy if you compare us to third world status, but we didn't have a whole lot. And and I remember hearing some of those times, not in an unloving way, not in a mean way, mom and dad just acknowledging to us as children, hey, we can't afford to do that. Maybe some of you grew up in similar circumstances where you heard that lovingly, kindly from mom and dad, but we can't afford to do that. As Timothy closes out, This letter, he really leaves us with three areas of life that we just can't afford to get wrong. As we think about what Timothy closes out with, he's going to talk about some things that you and I can't afford to make a mistake on. Areas of life that are going to challenge us and shape us. Uh, as McKenna's here and, and she's in our worship service today and we've got other seniors that will be in our other worship services, I, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture in First Timothy for those of you stepping out of high school and into college than this text of Scripture where Paul lays out three areas of life that you just quite simply can't afford to get wrong. If we get these areas wrong, we're going to so disrupt not only our spiritual values and our understanding of a walk with God, but we're going to disrupt our families and our relationships and our choices and decisions for many, many years. Let's read this text of Scripture and what Paul is talking about here. Try to unpack it in a way that's 
applicable to all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service and believers are, and are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing in the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Three areas of life that we can't afford to get wrong. First is, we can't afford to get our work wrong. Now what Paul's talking about in verses 1 and 2, he's talking specifically to those who were in the congregation in Ephesus who happened to be slaves. He talked to them in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 5 and 6 as well. He reflected on what slavery was like in that culture. And we read that from a 21st century lens and typically our minds go to the form of slavery that we had in our country where we enslaved people of a different race. And so if we read this text from a 21st century lens, we'll be tempted to think that Paul was way behind the times and why in the world did, not, did Paul not write uh, seeking to secure the freedom of slaves? Why didn't he start a ministry of social justice and revolution to try to raise up the slaves and free them from their institution of slavery? Uh, a couple of things about that that we need to remember. Paul's not writing from the, in the 21st century. To us, he's writing in the first century to the culture in which he found himself. And some things we need to understand about that should shape the way in which Paul wrote this text. One of the things we need to realize is that uh, the church was not a political voice or did not have a political voice in the first century. Several thousand believers in a, an empire of millions. The church did, did not have a means, even if it had a political voice, to make a political statement. That's not the way the Roman Empire worked. At this time in human history, the empire was just that. It was not a republic. It didn't have representation. There was not a government structure. And so one of the things Paul, we need to realize, and why he wrote to slaves as he did, is because he's not trying to stir up insurrection. His goal in the letter to 1 Timothy, his goal in all of his letters, was for followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus in whatever category or area in which they found themselves. Whether that be slave owners, or whether that be masters, or whether that be slaves. And so another reason that we need to get this is it's likely a significant portion of the church in Ephesus was made up of slaves. Some estimates have that 25 to 40% of the empire's population could have been slaves. That's a pretty significant portion of the Roman Empire's population. 
And so, what Paul is doing is writing to those slaves in the church, saying to them, hey, in your daily affairs, you need to act and behave as followers of Jesus. Why was he writing that way? Because some of those slaves were using their newfound freedom in Christ to basically say, I'm free now, I don't have to do this in, in service of my master. I'm free now. I can start to live however I want to live. I can do what I want. And the truth is, as followers of Jesus, we are utterly, absolutely, completely free. We are free from all encumbrances, all ownership, all rulership. But Paul's point to the slaves is we're free, but we're free to follow Jesus in all of the relationships in which we have. You've got to remember... In 1 Timothy, his emphasis is the mission of the gospel and guarding the gospel within the church. What is it like to be Christians in the environment in which we have been placed? And Paul's emphasis to the slaves is, if you are in an environment, if you are uh, underneath a master, whether that master is a Christian or non-Christian in the text, verses 1 and 2, he writes to both, whoever your master is, your responsibility is to act like Jesus and to serve like Jesus in that place in which God put you. Now, how does that affect us today? Well, what he's telling us is we read it from the 21st century is we can't afford to get our attitude and to get our focus and to get our mission and to get our mindset about work wrong. The problem in the first century with these slaves was they were acting disrespectful because they thought they knew better than their masters. Let me just be quite frank with us. I know some people who that is their attitude every time they get up and go to work. Their boss is an idiot. Their organization is so frustrating. So frustrating. And you know what? They carry that perspective in with the way that they interact with their bosses, their co-workers, and those that they serve as customers or as those that they serve in their daily business. Do you know how helpful that is? It's not helpful at all. That kind of attitude is not right. And it's certainly not a gospel-oriented, Christ-centered behavior that God expects. Notice the text. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. The picture is that we as followers of Christ, when we step into the workforce, we need to act in a way that is respectful to those around us. Why? Because folks, as a follower of Jesus, the primary influence that you have in your place of business is reflecting the life of Jesus to your co-workers, to your bosses, and to those that you serve. Why is that that important? Get this. Do you realize that the average American will spend around 90,000 hours working in their life? If you live a typical life, 60, 70 years, and you work a full-time job for the majority of your life, adult life, 90,000 hours working, do you know what that computes to? More than 10 years of your life, you will spend in your place of labor. Now, you may have changed jobs over the years. You may not be in the exact same job you did a few years ago, but 90,000 hours working, 10 years of your life, And if those 10 years of your life are inconsistent on Monday through Saturday with what you say you believe on Sunday, then you've lost 
your ability to influence those around you with the gospel of Christ. See, part of what Paul is saying here is you can't afford to get work wrong because work is going to be so influential in your life. It's going to govern the decisions that you make, how much money you can make, and we'll get to that point in just a moment. It's going to govern the time that you have. It's going to govern how you interact with people relationally. And he's not talking about your career choice, although that is tremendously important. It's something McKenna and others that are graduating, you ought to think about, we ought to pray about what does God want us to do with our life and how has He gifted us and shaped us. That's tremendously important. But Paul's primary emphasis is not on the choice we make in terms terms of the employment we gain, but the attitude we have in whatever employment we have. I know folks who have very influential jobs that are jerks, and their influence for Christ is negligent. I know people who have jobs that are not primarily influential in the way that what they do for a living, but they influence lots and lots and lots of people by the integrity in which they carry themselves because they've let their life as a follower of Jesus affect how they interact with all sorts of decisions that relate to ethical and moral decisions as well as relational decisions. What Paul is emphasizing here is that we can't afford to get our work wrong. Why were these slaves getting their work wrong? Because they thought it was all about themselves. Their focus was internal. They had a self-centered, autonomous perspective about life. This is what we want. Okay, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't have to serve this master. No, the perspective that we all ought to have is this. I've been remade by Christ. I'm going to serve Christ, and so I'm going to serve Christ in the interactions that I have on a daily basis as a follower of Jesus. Now, some of you are going to say, man, I'm, I'm glad I heard this message at this point in my life because now I'm retired. I, I don't go to a place of daily employment and labor. Let me just remind you, God did not start the most important part of Moses' work in life until he was 80. Who knows? Some of you and your retirement age may be just getting started in the vision and employment that God has for you in the future. Nevertheless, just remember that slaves had to do anything and everything. All of our labor, all of our labor, whether we get remuneration for it or whether it is simply keeping our house clean and taking care of a spouse or a child or a parent, all of our labor is under the... the picture of what Paul expects of slaves here in this text. Let me tell you something, folks. We can't afford to get our attitude about following Jesus and our daily labors wrong. Let me tell you another area of life that Paul says we can't afford to get wrong. We can't afford to get our faith wrong. If you pick up in the very next text, Paul says, the last part of verse 2, teach and urge these things. He's telling Timothy, hey, listen, you need to repeat this to those that are in your church. And then he says this in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus, the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up, and he goes on to describe those who were not teaching sound doctrine. That sound doctrine word is the same word he used in chapter 1, verse 3. It's other teach. It's a word that Paul coined. It's basically false teaching and false doctrine. 
And so this next paragraph here in this text, what Paul is saying is we can't afford to get our faith wrong. In the context he's talking about, those who would teach a false doctrine, those who would not be teaching clear biblical doctrine and theology, something that would push us away from Christ. And so we can't afford to get that wrong. We'll come back to make some specific applications in a moment for this, for our own life. But but what's he talking about with relation to false teaching in light of us as Christians? Notice what he says. How can we identify false teachers? How can you and I as followers of Jesus know that our preacher is telling us the truth according to Scripture? How can we know that the TV preacher we flip to today to, to hear and listen to is telling us truth according to Scripture? How can we know professors or bosses or anybody else is speaking, are speaking to us in a way that's consistent with the faith with, with which we have? Paul gives us some indicators here. A false teacher is someone whose words don't agree with the words of the Lord Jesus. If you hear somebody saying something as a value, as a worldview, or as a theology who says something that is in discord with what Jesus has taught and preached, you know that that person is teaching something that's inaccurate or false. Jesus, not modern day theologians, should be the centerpiece of sound sound doctrine. Whether that's someone we listen to on TV or whoever it might be. Another area that we can discover for making sure that we're hearing sound doctrine is a way that Paul says we can understand false teaching is false teaching comes with someone who teaches something that does not accord with godliness. So if someone's teaching something that doesn't relate to a more godly life, then we know that they're teaching something that's false. Because in the Bible, godliness, not prosperity, is the purpose of sound doctrine. God wants to make us more like Himself. I I kind of think that what Paul is doing here is teaching against the first prosperity gospel preachers. I think that's what was going on. These false teachers were saying, if we do this, we're going to have gain. Notice what he says in in the last part of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, part of the problem with these false teachers in Ephesus is they were assuming that their ministry, or what they thought was their ministry, was going to lead them to some financial gain. What Paul says is that's not the purpose. That's not the goal. The goal of listening to biblical teaching is not your wealth and health and future and finance. And he's going to make that very clear in the next paragraph. But the goal is godliness. So if you're watching TV one day and you come across one of those TV preachers and they're telling you that if you give them a certain amount of faith gift that you're going to be blessed abundantly with wealth and prosperity and physical health, I'm just here to tell you, you're hearing someone who's teaching something false. I'd warn all of you, don't listen to false teachers. And that's what Paul's saying here. Make sure you get your faith right. Another way we can determine whether someone is teaching something false is they are conceited or puffed up while understanding nothing. Literally, uh, they're full of hot air. Okay? Humility is the goal. Biblical humility, not hot air, is the character of sound doctrine. Listen, I've listened to some preachers who are right on a lot of things. But man, the tone and the arrogance that comes forward in the way that they communicate, and the way they interact with others. Listen, that's the kind of person you ought to pay attention to. Or, or rather, pay attention so that you don't listen to what they say. Watch, because God expects that those who teach His gospel teach so with humility. 
Someone who is fascinated with controversies and speculations. That's the mark of false teaching. Listen, theological fidelity, not idle speculation, is the goal of sound doctrine. If you get a preacher and all they want to do is argue and debate and speculate and divide and contend and frustrate, listen, that's just not healthy. There are certain things we need to debate and we need to talk about and discuss. I'll answer any question or try to answer any question you have about Christian doctrine or faith or theology. That stuff is important. But if all we're doing is stirring up controversy and strife, I'll just make an aside here. That's what Southern Baptist Twitter is. Some of you don't pay attention to that, but occasionally I follow some of the debates and frustrations politically and theologically on Twitter for among Southern Baptists. And it's just not healthy. It's a lot of controversies. It's a lot of speculations. It's a lot of frustrations. That's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to focus on what really matters in our faith. Let me give you the final thing. that False teaching basically results in envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspi- evil suspicions. Can you read into that conspiracy theories? Just throwing that out there. There, there are some of us, even in our uh, theologically right perspective as we look at the Bible, who are guilty of going too far down those rabbit trails and following conspiracy theories, whether they're theological or political in nature. And I'm going to tell you, all that stuff does is it divides and it pushes us away from Christ. There's, there are folks in our county that are guilty of just this where they've made claims and prophetic announcements that turned out to be absolutely false. Which, by the way, when you have a a false teacher who says something that turns out to be false, in the Old Testament, they would stone you. Just throwing that out there. We ought to ignore and avoid and only listen to what is biblically true and clear because Christ-like character and Christ-centeredness is the fruit of sound doctrine. So followers of Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that you and I need to make sure we don't get our faith wrong with regard to the doctrine that we listen to. We want to make sure that we're lined up with Scripture. And how do we know to do that? How do you and I make sure that the people we're listening to or the people that are preaching to us or the people that we're watching or the people that we're hearing are preaching sound doctrine? Can I tell you the best way for you to guard yourself against false teaching is to know this book? The best way, the most practical way you can avoid unsound doctrine or false teaching is to read the Bible. It's to know what the Bible says. It's to compare the teaching that you hear with the Word that you read. Because God's Word is faithful and true. That's why we give our seniors a Bible to take with them. It's not just symbolic. The most practical thing any one of us can do to make sure that what we believe is right is to make sure that what we believe comes from the revelation of the God alone who speaks truth and right and righteousness in our world. If there's one thing I could get every follower of Jesus to do on a daily basis, it would not be to listen to my sermons over and over again. It would not be to come to church every day and bow at an altar and pray. If I could get you to do one thing over and over and over again, it would be simply to read the very words of God on a daily basis in your own life so that you know what is true. We can't afford to get our faith wrong. Here's why. If we get our faith wrong, then we are in danger of eternal death. That's why Paul takes false teaching so seriously. Over and over again in 1 Timothy, he has talked about false teaching. 
false teaching leads us, leads some, to believe something that's not really the gospel. Take the prosperity gospel, for example. Prosperity gospel says that if you believe and pray right, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and full of hope and happiness in this life. Tell you something, that leads people away from Jesus, not to Jesus. Because God never promises that whatever you do, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and happy. God only promises that He will give you Jesus and Jesus will walk with you through health, wealth, happiness, suffering, difficulty, division, strife, all of the things that go on in your life. Jesus will be with you through all of those things. And I know people and have watched testimonies of people who have bought into a false gospel, the false prosperity gospel. And you know where they are? They're no longer in faith. Because the promises that they heard were given by a man who couldn't keep a promise, not by a God who kept a promise. Can't afford to get our faith wrong. Folks, you can't afford to get who you believe in wrong. I know some people that have really sincere beliefs. They're, the genuineness of their faith is not the question. The object of their faith is the question. Listen, there's coming a day when all of us, every single one of us is going to stand before a holy God. And He's going to look into our lives. He's going to look at our past. He's going to see whether or not we were right and righteous. And the only thing that will matter at that point, it's not how sincere our faith was. It's not going to matter whether we believed in some kind of other deity. It's not going to matter how nice we were. The only thing that will matter at that point is if we had a personal faith relationship with the only God who lives and the only God who is, Jesus Christ. The reason Paul is so concerned about us getting our faith right is because your eternal destiny rests on whether or not you have your faith right. And the church is supposed to be a proclaimer, not of false teaching, but of true teaching that leads people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I sit back and wonder, you know, I mean, Paul has dealt with just false teaching over and over again in 1 Timothy. You know why? Because if ever a church stands up or a pastor stands up in a church and preaches something false, you know what he's doing? He's pushing people away from the faith that they need to have. He's pushing people away from the Jesus who will offer them eternal life and salvation. We can't afford to get our faith wrong. I'll give you a third thing we can't afford to get wrong in life. It's probably the big one in the text. We can't afford to get our money wrong. Can't afford to get our money wrong. Do you realize that one of the most damaging sins in all the world is greed? It's really easy to identify other sins. I mean, you can see pride in other people, and you can see immorality in other people, you can see anger in other people, and sometimes we can see greed in other people. Man, it's hard to see greed in ourselves. It's hard to look within our heart and think, man, I. I I just want a little bit more. I don't want a lot more. Just, just a little bit more. You realize that has the tendency to be greedy? And Paul says that's not the perspective we as Christians ought to have with regard to money. Notice what he says. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. What Paul says is you and I need to be content with what God has given us in a faith relationship with himself. For we brought nothing in the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Here, let, let me just make it, make it very clear. Money is a fine servant, but it is a terrible master. 
What Paul is saying here about making sure we don't get our money wrong, it's helping us remember that what really matters is that we tell our money what to do rather than our money telling us what to do. Let me give you some reasons Paul gives here in the text why money is a terrible master. Money is a terrible master because you can't take any with you when you die. Notice what he says. We brought nothing in the world and we can't take anything out of the world. Some of you have been blessed with financial uh, benefits and, and, and savings. Fantastic. Been wealthy people for eons of human history. But do you realize when you were born in the world, you were born with nothing? You bring anything in. And guess what? When you die, you won't take any of it with you. Money is a terrible master because it doesn't go with us into eternity. I'll give you another reason. The desire to be rich is a terrible temptation that leads many to ruin. Notice what Paul says about this. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He uses verse 10, he says, they pierce themselves with many pangs. Listen, the desire to be rich is a temptation that can be destructive. I know some people that all they want in life is to, is to make money. I know some young people that their ambition is to get a good job, to make a good living, to make money. I get that. I understand that. We need money to survive. But if that is your ambition, I know more people that have been destroyed by that ambition than people that have been blessed by the, someone receiving that ambition and then them blessing others with it. That ambition is destructive, Paul says. Leads people to ruin. How about this one? The love of money is the root of evil. Uh, now, a lot of people have gotten this statement wrong over the years. Money is not the root of all evil. That's not what the text says. Money is a necessity. It's a commodity that you and I... It, now, there's a lot less of it, or rather, there's more of it. It has less value today. We're all struggling a little bit with the, the challenges of inflation, and I don't think that's going to get easier. So maybe this message comes at a really good time for us to have a biblical perspective on money. The issue is not money. The issue is the love of money. And it's not the root of all evil. There are all sorts of evils that have nothing to do with the love of money. But what Paul is saying is if we desire it, if it is our goal and ambition in life to have money and to have wealth, then that is a root of many kinds of evil and destruction. It turns people into greedy misers. I promise you, people in our community that act just that way, there are times we interact with them and it just it burns me up and burns some of you up the way some people treat money. And, and what Paul is saying here is we can't afford to get our perspective on money wrong. Finally, the craving for money has led many people away from the faith and into suffering and difficulties. Notice what he says. Some have wandered away from the faith because of their love for money. Some have been led into pangs that have pierced them because of the love of money. So Paul's telling us we can't afford to get our view on money wrong. Let me give you three specific applications before we close. Something that you can walk away with take away with as a follower of Jesus. Here's number one. Related to our work. Here's what I'd like you to do tomorrow in your labors. How about this? Labor as if God is your supervisor. Doesn't matter what you do. If you're in the office tomorrow, if 
you're folding laundry tomorrow, if you're unloading dishes, if you're making a meal, if you're seeing a patient, if you are buying or selling for your business, if you are overseeing students or teachers, it doesn't matter. Whatever your labor is tomorrow, how about this? Try tomorrow to do that labor as if God is your supervisor, as if He's the one that's going to grade your papers, as if He's the one that's going to give you an evaluation. As if He's the one that you're going to answer to. As if He's the one that is the chair of your board. Labor tomorrow as if God is your supervisor. That perspective will shape the attitude in which we carry ourselves regardless of what it is that we do. I'll give you a second application. Pursue contentment and godliness by feeding your faith. One of the greatest things that we could ever have in life is contentment. Being content with what we have. One of the reasons I didn't realize as a child I was poor, or at least not rich, is because my mom and dad never made me feel like we didn't have enough. They were simply content that we had enough. That was the attitude that they had. I'll tell you something, I'm grateful for that perspective today. If you have a shelter over your head and food on your table and clothes to wear, Paul says we ought to be content. So, What should we pursue? Wealth? Status? A bigger paycheck? No. Pursue what makes us godly. If you want to have your ambition for something, have an ambition for something that feeds your faith. Have an ambition for a relationship with God that drives your walk with Him on a daily basis. Have an ambition for something that makes you content. And I'm going to tell you, here's what that means for some of us. For some of us, we need to turn off Facebook and Instagram and social media apps because those things drive discontentment. Especially this summer. Some of you are going to go on grand vacations and some of us aren't. That's okay. Nothing wrong with having a grand vacation. Tell you what is wrong is when we scroll through everybody else's vacations and we wish, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. And guess what we begin to feel like? Man, I need to make more money. If I make more money, I can go on better vacations. Or, or if, if I make more money, I can have a better house. Or if I, if I, that's not contentment, folks. And I'm, I'm not. I'm just offering a, a suggestion. Pursue what brings contentment in your life, not what drives discontentment. Contentment leads to godliness. And Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. It's eternal gain. Because the reality is, let me just tell you this. When we get to heaven, God's not going to be impressed with your 401k, the size of your house, or the vacations you took. Okay? He might look, as I talked about Wednesday night, he might look and say, with his hand, he created all of the heavens. He might say, hold on a second, let me just show you what I did in the, in, in the moment when I, when I created everything. And we'll be like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what I have was nothing. And it, what we have is nothing. So pursue contentment. That's the point. I'll give you the third application. Discipline your heart by making money your servant, not a master. A tool, not an idol. We're going to come back to this very practically in next week's sermon because Paul deals with this specific statement to those who are wealthy. So we won't spend a lot of time with this today. But here's what it means. Make sure that money serves the purposes of God in your life, not you serving the purposes of money. Discipline your money. A lot of ways you can do that. You can tell it what to do. You can put it in a budget put it in a spreadsheet, give it away, share it, bless somebody else. Lots of things you can do with that. 
But don't let money be the driving influence for the decisions you make. Just don't let it. Because it will ruin you. God will never ruin you. If He is your pursuit, God won't ruin you. But money has the tendency to ruin and destroy our lives if we pursue it, if we're greedy about it, and if we love it. Close with this story, there was once a man who had made a whole lot of money in life. He was very, very wealthy. And he was very miserly, and he was very selfish. He was very self-centered with his money. And he knew he was getting to that stage in life when he was about to die, when, when, when his life was going to be over. And so he looked at his wife, and he said, I want you to promise me something. She said, what do you want me to promise you? He said, I want you to promise me something. She said, okay, I promise. He said, I want you to bury me with all my money. She had promised. So, of course, his death day came. Put him in a casket. Had the casket there at the funeral service. And during that funeral event, his wife walked up to his corpse there in that casket with an envelope. Took that envelope and put it inside his jacket pocket and uh, told them that they could then close the casket. Somebody who knew the situation, who knew what uh, his, her husband had asked her to promise, asked her, did, did you bury him with, with all of his wealth? She said, yes, I kept his promise. I moved all of his assets into my checking account. And I took a check out and I wrote him a check and I put it in an envelope and put it in his pocket. I buried him with all of his wealth. You can't take your money with you. That man was so dead that he couldn't cash the check for his wealth. Tell you something, folks. You and I can't take it with us. We can't afford to get these areas of our life wrong. Listen, when your death day comes, it won't really matter where you drew your paycheck from. What will matter is the legacy of attitude and ethic and the gospel that you shared in your behavior at your work. Listen, when your death day comes, any false belief you are holding won't help you. What will matter is whether you believed in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone as your Savior. What will matter is whether you were godly and content. Listen, when your death day comes, it won't matter how much money you made or what net worth you left behind. That won't matter. Won't matter to you anymore. Might ruin your children or grandchildren. Might affect the lives of others in countless good ways or in countless bad ways. But it won't really matter when you stand before God. What will matter is whether you were content with what you had and generous with what God blessed you with. We really can't afford to get these areas of our life wrong. My prayer is that this text of Scripture will challenge us all to pursue Christ-likeness. Now, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus to be your Savior, you don't have your faith right, today is an opportunity for you to get your faith right, to put your faith in Jesus alone as your Savior. I would love the opportunity to talk with you about your faith. I'll be available after the worship service if you'd like to talk, if you'd like to come down to this altar and talk with me at the invitation. Dr. Mike, I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we pray and close our worship service today. Our Father, we come to you. We're grateful for what you've done to give us life and salvation. We're grateful that you sent your son Jesus to pay our sin debt on the cross. We're grateful, Lord, that in the abundance of all that you have, you didn't save us through your wealth. You didn't save us through all that you owned. You saved us through the precious blood of your son that will last forever and forever. 
And Lord, I pray that today we would realize that these areas of life, you've given us the opportunity to get right, not wrong. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in the way we work, in what we believe, and in how we spend and think about money, Lord, that we would have your gospel-oriented perspective for your glory and for the benefit of your gospel throughout our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.